Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. We're on the home stretch of our digital annual conference this week, and if you've attended, I hope you've been enjoying the sessions. Whether you're taking a break between sessions or listening later, we have a great episode for you today. First up, Andrew Renda from Humana is here to talk about how the company helped achieve the bold goal of increased healthy days in Medicare Advantage markets. Later, in an interview sponsored by Medicist, we'll have Brett Tracy from Carillion Clinic and Nate Allen from Medicist discussing Medicaid expansion in Virginia. But first, let's see what's happening in the news with Rich and Chad. Hello, this is Rich Daly, senior writer and, and editor for HFMA. Hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Today on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, we'll interview Congresswoman Susan Del Bene on her hospital-supported legislation to revamp Medicare value-based payment models. By way of introducing our interview, Chad, could you tell us a little bit about why this legislation is important? Rich, this legislation really attempts to address a lot of the challenges that providers participating in the MSSP face and a lot of physicians and clinicians face in terms of qualifying for the APM bonus payment through through macro. And so this does a couple of things. One, it adjusts the shared savings rate back to 50% for entry-level ACOs and then for the different levels of ACO, it increases it, whereas obviously the, the pathways to success that was finalized with the administration two years ago reduced it. It makes adjustments to the risk mechanism to help protect providers against factors that are outside of the ACO's control. And so we certainly think that's a good thing. It does away with the distinction in pathways to success, which is quite artificial, between air quotes, high revenue and low revenue ACOs and some of the policy changes that frankly don't really make sense and also further complicate the program, participating in the program. And there's also some work to particularly for rural providers to really think about how you create benchmarks that are fair, accurate, and cause you not to continually compete against yourself or other ACOs. And these are all things that we at HFMA and other provider organizations have long asked CMS and Congress for. So we are generally supportive of the legislation. I see. The other thing that we see the legislation correct is that, you know, as we know, the, the ramp up to the thresholds that you would need to cross as a provider to qualify for the advanced APM bonus, the ramp is quite steep. The engagement in alternative payment models that qualify has not been as steep or as quick simply because CMS has made some of these models quite unwieldy. And so this would reduce the threshold and allow more providers to qualify, again, which we think is a, a very good thing. Right. And that's key since the APM bonus also is running out of time here. So I guess building on that and extending the, the time frame, I think, does for another six years, uh, seems like it would benefit a lot of physicians. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot for, for that understanding, Chad. And so now let's uh, go ahead and move on to our interview with Representative Del Bene. Thanks for joining us, Congresswoman. It's great having you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be here. So let's dive right into the legislation. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about examples of value-based payment problems that this legislation would address. 
Well, I know we've seen that value-based organizations have really made a huge difference in healthcare in terms of helping make sure that we have better outcomes for seniors and save money. And so this is really the type of change we want to see, but we have to make sure the right incentives are in place. And we knew that uh, the shared savings rates for folks entering um, had been changed, went from 50% down to 40%. In our legislation, we want to bring that back up. We want to make sure incentives are there for people to participate in the ACO program. And um, and so making those changes is critically important. We also wanted to make sure that we address the threshold issue, which would change next year, which means the payment percentage would rise to 75% in 2021 from 50%, so that lots of folks um, who participate may no longer be able to meet such a huge leap from 50% to 75%. So in our legislation, we bring it back to 50%, and then it could only be increased by 5% a year at a time after 2021 by the HHS secretary so that we aren't seeing such a huge change over a year. And um, finally, we you know want to make sure that the bonus is in place if you're starting off and you haven't had a chance to participate in the, the 5% annual lump sum if we don't extend that period, folks who are just getting started wouldn't be able to participate in that. So that I'd say those are three really important components of the legislation. Yeah, definitely hearing from physicians about that that five years running out. So that, that definitely sounds important. Mm-hmm. So um, what is the actual legislative outlook for the legislation? Uh, for instance, could it be included in the usual year-end Medicare extenders package? Um, Well, I definitely think parts of it could be included in a year-end package. The QP threshold fix is something, for example, that could be included given that it's problematic now and will become a big problem in 2021 with that 25% increase if we don't change that. So we want to make sure that we try to get that through. If the hurdles are too high, then we're just not going to see people participate. Um, So that's something I think that could be included, but we're going to work to get as much of it as possible included in legislation if we can at the end of the year. I see. And also wanted to check uh, a little bit more generally if you have any thoughts on the outlook for value-based payment. If the pandemic ends up being longer than the conventional wisdom suggests, I guess we're looking, um, a briefing last week from Dr. Fauci I was on said, He's very optimistic. We'll have a vaccine, I think, by the beginning of 2021. But uh, if that doesn't happen or the vaccine isn't as effective as everyone hopes, is there any thoughts on the world of value-based payment and how it could unfold in the future? Well, I definitely think we always have to hope for the best, but be prepared for the worst. The pandemic has definitely gone on longer and been more acute than folks expected. And our response has not been as strong as it should have been, unfortunately. And so we've got to make sure that we put healthcare first and help keep our community safe. So ACOs are providing care coordination and that's very critical at this time, especially. And when we have seniors who are trying to manage uh, other issues like nutritious food and prescriptions, um, making sure that we have that coordination is key. And that's what I hear from ACO in my state. I think that we're going to see a lot of positive stories come out um, when the pandemic is over about how important that coordination was. And so I do think that making sure that we have the right incentives in place to continue to 
this transformation towards value-based care is going to be very, very important. So these changes can help make a difference. I see. That uh, that helps a lot. And I think uh, we've all learned a lot here today. Uh, so I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and explain the legislation and uh, the general lay of the land. Thank you. Have a great day. Are you a business partner looking to connect with HFMA members? Share your thought leadership, network with our membership, sponsor events, and raise your brand awareness in unique and meaningful ways. For more information and to discover all the opportunities available, please visit us at hfma.org opportunities. When is the last time you took stock of your complete physical, mental, and social well-being? For most people, such an assessment probably doesn't happen on a daily basis, but for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, measuring what they call healthy days can be useful for, quote, identifying health disparities, tracking population trends, and building broad coalitions around a measure of population health compatible with the World Health Organization's definition of health, end quote. Humana began tracking healthy days in 2015 as part of its Bold Goals initiative, and earlier this year reported a significant reduction in unhealthy days in its Medicare Advantage markets. Andrew Renda, Associate Vice President of Population Health for Humana, talked with me recently about the initiative and what it means for population health. It started about five years ago when our CEO established the Bold Goal, which is to improve the health of the communities we serve by making it easy for people to achieve their best health. And he wanted the goal to be inspirational and aspirational, but also measurable. And so kind of put this uh, parameter around it where we wanted to improve health by 20%. And he looked at our team and said, you know, figure out what that right metric is, figure out how we can actually improve health at a population level for for the folks that we serve. And so we went down this path of, evaluating a number of different health-related quality of life measures. And where we settled was on the CDC Healthy Days tool. And we really like the Healthy Days tool because it's really simple, easy to administer, it's self-report by design, and it gives equal weight to both physical health and mental health. And so we started surveying our members with that about five years ago to get a baseline first, but then to trend um, populations over time. Um, And we found it to be really instructive because it does give an accurate representation of how people are feeling about their health. And you can use it at an individual level and at a population level. So once we established the the Healthy Days metric and and the goal, we went about establishing a a strategy to actually move the needle on it a little bit. And so, you know, we recognize that health is local. And so it really starts with a community-based approach. And so we designated certain communities to be bold goal communities started with San Antonio and it's evolved first to seven communities and now we're up to 16. And, and designating something as a Bulgol community means that we go into that community, we establish an internal board of directors within our own kind of organization. So we get the medical director and the market president and people like that involved. And then an external health advisory board where we look at all the kind of key stakeholders in the community. And that can be for-profit, non-profit, faith-based, governmental, and others really to get a beat on what's happening, you know, from a health perspective in the community. And that then informs our strategy. 
And so from there, we said, okay, what, what are the best ways that we can improve healthy days? And one way to do that is to address chronic conditions that people have. And we've certainly done that. But another way we found through some research at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is that social determinants of health are often at the root cause of why people aren't achieving their best health outcomes. And so we've, we've really leaned into addressing social determinants of health. And that, you know, there's many, many social determinants. We needed a way to kind of narrow that down a little bit through. So through some research that we've done, we found that food insecurity and loneliness are two social determinants that have what we found to be the greatest impact on health-related quality of life. And so since then, we spent the last couple of years really developing a portfolio and pipeline of of analytics and interventions and things to, to move the needle on some of those social determinants. Tell me a bit about the results that you've seen so far and how that is shaping your strategy going forward. Well, from a healthy day standpoint, we do a progress report every year and we we do random representative sampling of our membership on healthy days. And what we found is that our report this year reflected um, an improvement of 800,000 healthy days, meaning we, you know, quote unquote, gave back 800,000 healthy days to our membership, you know, and that's 800,000 days where people can live their life and, and do the things that they want to do, spend time with their grandkids, you know, go to the park, whatever it is. And so we're, you know, we're really proud of that. We've also had some preliminary but very positive, you know, outcomes in some of the interventions that we've done. We've we've, we've made a lot of progress in understanding what type of interventions are most effective in addressing food insecurity. We, we've done some other things around loneliness and social isolation, and and had some good successes there. During the call that we had uh, to to prepare for this interview, you told me a story about. Uh, about COVID and some of the calls that you were getting. Would you share that story with our listeners? Of course. Yeah, I, I think it's a really instructive story. What happened was when, when COVID first hit, we you know gathered a task force together and we wanted to figure out how, how best to respond, how best to you know care for our members. And, you know, our first principles at that point were to ensure continuity of care and to make sure that me- members had medications on hand. And I think those are really critical things and really, really important. But what we found was many of our members were calling into our call centers and, and talking to care managers and saying, you know, that's, that's great and that's important. But what I really need right now is food. I'm food insecure because of, you know, there could be a financial issue that resulted from losing a job or even just an access issue, meaning that they were afraid to go outside. They were afraid to go to the grocery because they were afraid of getting the virus. And so, you know, we, we took that and kind of adjusted our strategy a little bit and actually built what we call now our basic needs program. And that is we've coordinated with a number of different companies to actually send out meal kits to members that have screened positive for food insecurity. And it's amazing. But, you know, at, at the peak, we were distributing over 2,000 meal kits a day. And to date, over the last four months, we've distributed over 900,000 meals to our members. And, you know, and we're doing that because it's the right thing, but we're also doing it because, you know, at the core, we believe that addressing social determinant gaps will help improve someone's health outcomes. Several years ago, when we first went to our management team and said, we believe we need to address social determinants to improve health, health outcomes, we had the first problem of, I don't think they had heard the term social determinants of health. And once we explained it, they said, I'm not sure that it's our role to actually send meals out to people or address loneliness or transportation kind of issues. And so 
we've really had to, you know, create the case for health and the create, create the case for a return on investment around, you know, going deep into social determinants. And I think we've, we've done that to, to the point where our CEO now talks about five points of influence, the five most important ways that we can influence uh, the health of, of a person that we serve. And it's things like primary care and pharmacy and home health and behavioral health. But social determinants is one of those five things. And so, you know, coming from top down, we now have more of a permission space to address social determinants as a vehicle to improve health outcomes. So we've made tremendous progress. We've also, you know, had to really survey our members directly to find out, you know, what is the prevalence of certain social determinants and, you know, how do they exist in combination? How does that relate to, you know, healthcare resource utilization and costs and other things like that? And we found some really interesting statistics. You know, when we surveyed 100,000 of our Medicare members, we found 40% of them had a financial strain. 26% of them were food insecure. You know, um, almost 30% of them were lonely or socially isolated. And so that reinforces what we'd seen from external research. It reinforces you know, some of the strategic intents that we have and, and really validates that, you know, these are important things that we need to address if we're going to improve health outcomes in the, the people that we serve. And I'd say that, you know, from a from a strategic standpoint, we have this care model that we've we've used for chronic conditions in the past and now we're evolving it to address social determinants of health. And it starts with this kind of infrastructure of data. So, you know, we directly screen some of our members, um, many of our members, to, to understand if they do suffer from these social determinants. We've done advanced analytics so that we can begin to anticipate or predict people that may be more likely to have these kinds of issues. And, of course, we incorporate, you know, external geospatial data sets. But having that data foundation allows us then to, you know, have actionable insights that then lead to interventions. And on the intervention side, that can sometimes mean an organic pilot. You want to do a food insecurity intervention with a certain practice group and, and address a certain cohort of members. It can also be integrating into a lot of our current clinical operating models. So we have, you know, thousands of nurses that do telephonic outreach or in-home, you know, care management. They address clinical gaps in care. We are now incorporating social gaps in care as well. So a member may be asking, are you taking your medications for your diabetes and things like that? Now they're also going to say, do you have food in your fridge? Because sometimes, you know, not eating the right food has a bigger impact on someone's diabetes status than actually taking their medications. So integration is another uh, the way that we do that. And then, you know, as we evolve even further, we're beginning to look at, can we address social determinants through benefit design? With some of the newer things coming out of CMMI, from CMS, we are now able to create certain types of supplemental benefits that are like um, value-based insurance design or SSBCI, which is a special supplemental benefits for the chronically ill, and can it, can it begin to address these social needs you know, through that mechanism. And then a final way that I would say is that we're also, many of our primary care providers that we work with are already in value-based relationships with us. Now we're beginning to incorporate social determinants into value-based relationships with providers. So there's multiple ways that we can go about doing this. But, you know, to get back to the original question, it does permeate across our entire enterprise. If you want to learn more about Humana's work in population health, you can visit populationhealth.humana.com. 
you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash job bank. Virginia's Medicaid expansion in 2019 was the largest in the Commonwealth's history, according to its Department of Medical Assistance Services. For Carilion Clinic, a Roanoke-based not-for-profit health system, Medicaid expansion necessitated new processes for more efficient enrollment. Here to talk about making that change is Carilion Clinic's Vice President of Revenue Cycle, Brett Tracy, and Nate Allen, a Senior Vice President at Medicist. The first voice you'll hear is Tracy's. We knew as a state we were going to expand our state Medicaid in January 2019. And we knew based off our current population of patients and the number of people estimated to be at self-pay that we were preparing for a tsunami of new patients that would be newly eligible for Medicaid that previously had not been. And so what we had to say is how could we augment our current strategy to be more nimble and to serve these patients in a much more timely fashion. And so that's what caused us to decide to move in a new direction so that we can support our existing processes, but be prepared to take on and support the new patients. When we first approached Brett and Carillion, it was clear that they were thinking ahead with Medicaid expansion in Virginia. And our experience in other expansion states was really a strong focus on that ED and outpatient segment because those folks are coming into the hospital and those are going to be your recurring patients that are going to have future visits. So capturing them earlier on in the process is really allowing Carillion to take advantage of the Medicaid expansion. The solution, according to Allen, is face-to-face interaction and screening with patients as early as possible. We're trying to maximize the patient's cooperation at the point of registration, and using the data inputs at that point allows us to make a real-time determination of their eligibility criteria or qualifiers. So the screening itself then leads to a higher screening volume, then ultimately leads to a higher gross approval percentage, which in turn leads to higher Medicaid cash back for Carillion, as well as a decrease in self-pay. A mobile app that collected information at the patient's convenience not only gave the organization a way to communicate efficiently, but helped increase patient satisfaction as well as job satisfaction for employees who liked the smoother process. From Carillion's perspective, the mobile app was very attractive because it took technology that we did not have today, and it integrated with the patient experience to make sure that they could get timely information entered at their leisure, but we would take advantage of the opportunity to engage them at the point of care. That optimized experience for the employee increased their satisfaction being able to process the component aspects quicker. And so we were very encouraged that we made their process more lean so that they could get their work done uh, without being bogged down in paperwork. One of the things that, you know, through the Medicaid process, you know, can be somewhat intimidating for a patient, you know, and that's really where, where we want to be there to help that patient through the process, uh, not only, you know, helping them complete the application, but also helping them understand uh, you know, where they are in the process, what documents are required. Sometimes uh, the patient may not have good visibility 
to what documents are required and what they've already submitted, what still needs to be submitted. So that, that mobile app serves, in a sense, as a checklist for the patient, which helps them more clearly understand where, where they are in the process. What are some of the key measurements that providers can look at to determine whether a strategy like this is appropriate for their organization? Some of the key measurements that providers should really pay attention to is the self-pay conversion rate to Medicaid. You want to make sure that you compare your before and after with a control group to see how well your patients naturally convert to Medicaid through your current processes. And if you were to partner with an organization or change your process with medicines, you want to quickly track how does your before and after look relative to the past and how does it trend moving forward. And that you want to make sure that that's continually improving over time. The one thing about Medicaid expansion is you already know that your rate of approval will increase naturally. And so one thing that's unique about that is you have to keep track of your current staff's productivity and then compare it to what you would think the impact of Medicaid expansion would be. One thing that we really liked with, with Medicist is we already had projected an increase in, in approved lives for Medicaid, but we did not project it at the rate that Medicist was able to help us achieve. And so through a significant fold increase uh, in coverage and Medicaid coverage for, for the patients, it far surpassed our, our pre-partnership expectations to where we thought we would be. And based off those results, we knew that we had succeeded. As always, you know that not every live is going to be covered in Medicaid, even with the expanded coverage and parameters. So you have to subsequently track your financial assistance demographics and how is that population shifting because you want to make sure you're given the right amount of financial assistance and charity to be in, in a compliance with the 501R regulations. And then the other thing that you have to track alongside is your ED visit acuity statistics. As patients come in, you want to be very sensitive to EMTALA and other regulations to take care of your patients, but you want to correlate that with your Medicaid coverage because even if you cannot get that patient serviced at the point of care, you want to make sure that you're quickly following up when that patient has stabilized and able to get them the appropriate coverage that, that you want to see. You know, from our perspective, you know, when you look at uh, an approval percentage, a conversion percentage, I like to look at it from a gross perspective. When you look at 100% of the self-pay and how much of that is being converted into a Medicaid category, that's obviously probably the, the, the primary statistic uh, when determining a Medicaid eligibility vendor's effectiveness. Other metrics to look at would be screening rate, you know, and, and really the inpatient screening rate is going to be critical because that's really where a lot of your dollars are coming from. But um, as I mentioned, ED and outpatient uh, screening rates are equally as important when, when you think about that patient and the likelihood that they're going to come back in through your facility, being able to screen them on site when they're coming into the ED and getting them converted ultimately expedites the process uh, to, to get the Medicaid dollars when they're coming back in in the future. So uh, I just would like to add that. Nate and Erica, the other thing to mention that we do at Carillion is anytime we implement a new technology or process change within patient-facing areas, we automatically track our patient satisfaction and net promoter scores relative to those areas. We, we don't necessarily believe that correlation and causation are equivalent. However, over time, when you do your trends and regression analysis, you can with reasonable certainty say that this change we put into place at a certain date 
could have a dramatic impact on that patient's experience. And so through Carillion's investment in technology and efficiency in, in these partnerships, they are committed to servicing and providing great care. We, we want to make sure that we are providing that optimal experience for our patient. And one thing I can say about this is as we've tracked patient satisfaction scores, we have seen a significant upward trend even through the pandemic and that we're providing more technology services for our patients so that we can remove that element of fear uh, and, and the interactions that they would have in a natural setting and even more so within the world that we live in today. This interview was sponsored by Medicist. Medicist offers focused solutions across eligibility, enrollment, business office management, and recovery. These solutions are designed to help clients prevent revenue leakage while enhancing individual engagement and satisfaction. Medicist's Digital First, Digital Now solutions provide automation opportunities that maximize operating efficiencies, all while improving the customer's experience. Transforming financial process management, igniting patient loyalty, driving excellence. To learn more, visit gomedicist.com or look for them on social media. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. And as always, if you have any questions or ideas about what you'd like to hear, you can reach out to our team at podcast at hfma.org. I don't remember what I was going to say there.